0: probably the last movement of Beethoven's seventh symphony. Uh, it's fast paced, it requires a lot of discipline, everyone's got to play their part, uh, but it's optimistic. So that bit, would be- yeah, my, A bit
1: uh, triumphal as I recall.
0: And very triumphal. Yeah, we, we will prevail. So I think that, that's, that would be my encouragement to everybody.
1: My name is Neil Canavan. I am the scientific advisor to Solvary Trout, and this is the latest edition of Name Tag podcast series that introduces healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the healthcare sector forward. Today, I am speaking with Robert Gio. He is the co-founder and CEO of Diasome Pharmaceuticals. Robert, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Neil. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Now, uh, first things first, uh, for the benefit of those who may not be familiar with Diasome, let's start with the elevator pitch. So Bob, 60 seconds or less, how long have you guys been in business? Where are you located? And give me an idea of what you do there.
0: Diazome was formed in 2004 and we're located in Cleveland, Ohio. And we are focused on using a novel liver cell specific targeting system to change the way diabetes drugs work uh, either after injection for drugs like insulin or after oral administration for drugs including insulin but also GLP-1 and other things. It really is focused on addressing a core, what we refer to as biodistribution problem for diabetes drugs. The liver is central in its ability to regulate glucose when we eat food and when we consume glucose as fuel. And the core challenge with a lot of diabetes drugs, especially with insulin, is that it's difficult, if not practically speaking impossible to get those drugs to the liver at the right time in the right amount. And so that's what we're focused on.
1: All right. Um, A little later in the podcast, we'll definitely drill down on that technology that enables you to do that. But first, uh, I want to give the listener a little bit of perspective here on this clinical relevance. Could you give me a few numbers uh, to the problem that you're proposing to solve, the the so-called unmet medical need here?
0: In type 1 diabetes which used to be called juvenile diabetes which is why the juvenile diabetes research foundation is called that, um, the pancreas which is the only organ in the body that makes insulin loses its ability to make insulin and that is catastrophic in type 1 diabetes patients if left untreated because insulin is the hormone that tells cells to open up to allow glucose molecules to come in. That's really important because glucose is the central fuel source for the body. Um, And so if we don't have insulin, we don't have any way to use glucose, which means glucose just circulates around in the body and glucose, elevated glucose levels in the body act like chemical shards of glass. So the the long-term consequences of diabetes, having too much sugar in our blood over a chronic period of time, is that the blood vessels in the body begin to break down. Essentially the glucose molecules eat away at the lining of those blood vessels. That's why people with diabetes worry about what are referred to as the opathies neuropathy, which is damage to the blood flow around our extremities, our fingers and toes, nephropathy, which is damage to the kidney tissue and retinopathy, which is damage to the back of the eye. So blindness, kidney disease, and amputations are because of having too much sugar in our blood. Insulin is the hormone signal that prevents that from happening. It is the case in the United States right now that fully 80% of all people with type 1 diabetes are not able to reach their American Diabetes Association and JDRF treatment goals, as measured by a marker called HbA1c, which is a number that tells you what your average blood sugar level is over a 90 day period. Having elevated A1c it, over a long period of time is a key indicator of running into these apathies and, and ultimately uh kind of what does those of us who have diabetes does us in so we're the unmet need is insulin is the right drug in people who need insulin it just doesn't get where it needs to go and it creates all kinds of problems on the one hand it's life-saving but it's very suboptimal as it does that so we're focused squarely on changing the way with our most advanced technology changing the way insulin functions once it gets into the body to bring people under better control without the dangerous potential side effects of insulin itself.
1: All right, now um, I'm gonna go uh, a little farther back into your education and we're, I'm going to look for the source of this, this mission of yours. You will. So first you start out uh, Case Western uh, Reserve University. You got a degree in 1990, and this is in studies of orchestral conducting, which is very typical of a biotech CEO. Could you give me just a little bit of color on that?
0: Yeah, so I, I grew up in a uh, science family. Uh, I actually worked with my father, uh, whose name is Blair Gio. He's our chief science officer and the founding scientist of of the work that we do. And oh. when, when I was growing up, I wanted to have nothing to do with what my father did. I didn't want to be in an office. I didn't want to um, work in that world. I found it relatively uninteresting as a kid. I have two brothers who were physicians um, and my mother's a nurse. In fact my my parents met when my father was in medical school here in Cleveland. My mother was in nursing school. So I had all kinds of reasons to either love science or be completely disinterested in it and I, I for whatever reason was disinterested when I was growing up. What I was interested in Um, in addition to growing up in Cincinnati during the the height of the Big Red Machine. So I was interested in baseball and I was interested in classical music. And in particular, I was really intrigued with the work that a conductor does. So there was something really appealing even as a kid about watching someone stand in front of 100 people, wave his or her arms and have all this sound come out and I just thought it was really neat. So when I uh, went through high school, uh, was a pretty serious classical music student and was accepted as a piano major actually at the Cleveland Institute of Music. The reason why I went there is that I had studied in high school with a very prominent piano teacher uh, who actually studied when she was a young adult in New York in the 1940s with a teacher who was a personal friend of the, the German composer Johannes Brahms. So there was this long um, that, that may make me sound really old. Uh, <laughs> as I yeah. she, was, she had a, a very interesting background in pedigree. She was a very interesting person in her own right. And uh, we had a close working relationship uh, for many, many years. And so I studied piano and I also studied conducting. So I studied conducting with one of the staff conductors of the Cleveland Orchestra, which is a very prominent international reputation orchestra that's of course located here in Cleveland and that's what I wanted to do as I uh, headed towards graduating from my undergraduate program which was a combined degree program between Case Western Reserve University and the conservatory here um, it became clear that managing one's career as a conductor also had a significant business aspect to it and so it made sense as I engaged with people in terms of professional guidance and counsel, that having some sense of being able to read a financial statement, read a contract uh, would make sense. And so I applied to the, the uh, MBA program, also at Case Western Reserve, primarily because at the time I thought, worst case scenario, I would get into arts management and I was a Cleveland Orchestra uh, junkie, if you will. Yeah. And thought uh, you know it'd be a great place to have a career uh, in Cleveland with one of the world's top five orchestras.
1: Now let's let's leave it off, let's leave it off for there because now you have your MBA, at, with the idea of you know running an orchestra is, is a business, and again all this is exactly what biotech <laughs> CEOs do. This is their background. They try to figure out how to organize things. Um, now I I, I do want to get into your uh, your career path following that but I want to do the first part of it out of chronological order because I think it's relevant to the rest of the conversation. Uh, In 2013, you got on the board of directors of the Diabetes Hands Foundation.
0: Why? I was introduced at an event in Cleveland around that time to a person named Manny Hernandez. And Manny is one of the founders of what's referred to now as the diabetes online community. And Manny is an engineering by training, originally from Venezuela, and he was diagnosed as an adult, as was I, with type one diabetes. And as he describes it, it was a a shock to the system, kind of across all aspects of his life. And in the late 2008, 2009 period into the uh, early teens, as I understand it, he began to kind of go online to see if there were other people who were diagnosed with uh, insulin deficient diabetes as an adult and try to figure out how do I live with this disease. And what he found was that there were a lot of people kind of interspersed across the World Wide Web, but there was no central meeting place for people to trade notes. And one of the th- diabetes, generally speaking, and perhaps especially type 1 diabetes, is that we learn how to manage our disease because it's an hour by hour, 24 hour a day situation where things are constantly changing by picking up tips and, and feedback and help from kind of a peer to peer networking point of view in addition to the guidance that of course we all get from our physicians and nurse educators. And so Manny began to interact as a blogger online Uh, during that period of time as a means of kind of figuring out how do I, how do I manage this. That blogging became so popular that he created a 501c3 called the Diabetes Hands Foundation and it was kind of like let's just join hands on this and the, the tagline was, you know, no one needs to be alone in this effort to live with type 1 diabetes. One thing led to another and within a relatively short period of time, I was invited to join the board, which I was very happy to do because Uh, both my personal uh, day-to-day life as a type 1, but also because it just makes sense in a disease where, on the one hand, adults are dealing with it uh, and they need uh, information from each other, but also one of the hardest things to watch is when a family gets a type 1 diabetes diagnosis for one of their children. And now, uh, especially if they're really young children, you know, toddlers and and, um, grade school age kids, parents who have no idea about how glucose metabolism works and what insulin even is go from not knowing anything to needing to be basically day-to-day endocrinologists or at least um, really sophisticated and they need that information in a hurry. And the Diabetes Hands Foundation was one of the best places to go for that kind of uh, peer-to-peer information. So it was, it was a privilege to be involved in that. That group was, um, Merged into a few years ago um, to a group called beyond type one and and the platform has just continued to expand
1: So now that we have a tremendous clarity around the importance of this mission the, and the Millions others um, Right after the NBA it turns out the uh, Cleveland Orchestra was not hiring And so you decided to start a company, your first company founded, uh, which is SDG. Could you tell me a bit about that?
0: Yeah, so as I was finishing my MBA, a couple of things happened. One is I was diagnosed really out of the blue with type one diabetes. Um, Went in for a kind of routine physical and the physician asked me uh, if I had ever had my glucose checked in a kind of official way. And I said, no, I never had any reason to. The need to do that and he said well you have a reason now you need to go get this checked out. Um, it turned out that coincidentally my father has had up to that point and, and has um, you know for the following 27 years spent a great deal of his own research effort across a variety of companies focused on diabetes drug development and so immediately I called up my dad and said hey I just got this uh, warning flag about my blood sugar levels. I I said I'm sure it's a mistake but we probably ought to run it down. I went through a formal uh, diagnostic panel with uh, a friend of his here in Cleveland and sure enough I came back with this astounding diagnosis. I had never been and and thankfully to this day I've never spent a day of my life in the hospital but I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So that kind of changed my, it explained a lot uh, because I had spent at least one year of graduate school feeling like I was just chronically fatigued. You know, I'd have lunch, I I would eat a high-carb lunch for whatever reason, and then I just couldn't keep my eyes open during the afternoon, which makes it really hard to uh, be productive. And I just thought, well, I'm in graduate school. Everyone's tired when they're in graduate school. And it turned out that I was probably just chronically hyperglycemic. I just had too much sugar in my blood. And one of the side effects of that is you just feel, you know, really fatigued. so that kind of you know, changed my thinking about how I was gonna live life uh, as a 25 year old. And at about that same time, my father was transitioning into a new entrepreneurial company that he wanted to get started. And I graduated from business school. And he said, look, if you're looking for something to do, I need someone to write a business plan and I thought, well, I have this MBA. I, that's like what we do is, as you know, MBA graduates, we write business plans. And then I said, I'll give you six months and then I'm off to wherever. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go do something else. Well, six months turned into a year, turned into a longer period of time. And it just became the science that, that he has developed. Um, it's just very compelling. And it fit with kind of where I was in life and I, be, it's interesting, you know, because I became, you know, I viewed myself as uh, someone who really enjoyed the creative aspects of, of music. Um, it's a combination of, you know, certain skills, imagination, discipline, all the things that it, you know require to be a classical musician or musician of any kind. And I, I began to see, to my surprise, that those same kinds of things are required to run an entrepreneurial life sciences company. And at that point I wasn't thinking about running them, but, but to be involved in, in that kind of work, um, it's, it really requires a wide range of disciplines and capabilities. There have actually been uh, articles written about how running companies in general uh, is like being an orchestra conductor. You've got you know you've got your trumpet players in the back, you've got your string section right in front of you. They all have different skill sets. They have different personality types. Um, and you have to make all of that kind of work. Yeah. And I began to see that in a really different way in a like a small entrepreneurial life sciences company. People have to play different roles at, at different times. Uh, you have to work together to make things happen. And like in an orchestra, oftentimes you have no place to hide. You're just exposed because everyone's got to do their thing. And so, you know, my entire career now has been spent in working with the team that's been put together, uh, led by science that came out of uh, my father's work, and it's all focused on a very unique view, we think, into how glucose is metabolized, how drugs work, especially in the liver, or in many cases, how they don't work in the liver because they can't get there, and trying to meet significant unmet clinical needs with what we think is a, an interesting and important view into all of that.
1: Well, now, let me let me stop you there. Um, for, the, for the listener, uh, the SDG was founded in, in 1994. And Bob, you're still uh, the vice president there, correct? That's right. Know? OK. Uh, so this exists concurrently with your uh, CEO uh, chair at Dyson, And you can tell me how that one feeds into the other first. I will then just mentioned the two other stops on the way uh, to your current role, which is in uh, 97, you went to a company which you co-founded, AMDG, and then following uh, that in, in Spherion, if you could connect the dots there, and then in the middle of that, in 2004, you founded Diasome. If you could connect right. the dots for me, how all that one feeds into the other.
0: Sure. SDG, as you uh, say, Neil, was formed in 1994, and it was formed as an idea-generating, intellectual property-generating company uh, with my father Blair as the the founding scientist and CEO, and the idea was to begin to really develop um, in that business context, a platform of cell-specific drug targeting systems. So not just in diabetes, but also in oncology. Uh, It had some consumer product applications, and it was all predicated on the fact that we could take a phospholipid delivery system and in a customizable way, depending on what type of uh, cell receptor targeting molecule we embedded in that carrier, we could target chemotherapy agents to tumor cells, we could bind uh, dermatology drugs to the top layer of the skin we could control how far down into the uh, uh, layers of the skin and tissue a drug would go if you wanted to just stay on the top layer you could you could do that you could control how deep into the tissue it went um, we could deliver things to bone cells we could deliver things to liver hepatocytes we could take uh, using this technology and we're still focused on this. Uh, injectable protein and peptide drugs and convert them to oral protein delivery systems with relatively or very high oral bioavailability. And SDG was going to be the holding company and and is that holding company for a lot of that intellectual property. And then for various business and strategic reasons, we thought that it would be appropriate to begin creating spin-out companies uh, that hold licenses to various aspects of that because the people and skills necessary for a small company to work on oncology products is different than working on a diabetes program. And so uh, AMDG and Diasome are two examples of those types of spin out companies. Uh, Diasome, as an example, operates from an exclusive uh, worldwide license to key intellectual property created by SDG originally for diabetes, metabolism and obesity products that the SDG team originally created. And so I then, in 2012, was asked to step in and function as CEO, which I was delighted to do, uh, for Diasome. So there's a close relationship between the two companies. They have different boards of directors. There's some overlap in shareholders. uh, But as much as possible, they function as separate companies.
1: All right, now I think we're going to dive directly into the technology at hand. Um, And I'm going to cue you up with a quote from the Diasome website, and this is the quote. Novel insulin development has not yet solved a critically important factor in the optimization of insulin therapy, and that is its location. So how are you getting it to its location?
0: Let me me start by describing why location is, you know, like in real estate, why location is so important. There are three basic cell types in the body that have insulin receptors. And as I mentioned earlier, insulin is the hormone system that tells cells to open up and allow sugar to come in. So the reason why you can lift up a tennis racket or swing a golf club is that your muscle cells are able to burn sugar or glucose as fuel the way that glucose molecule gets into your muscle cell is because insulin from the pancreas tells that cell to open up and allow sugar to come in so that it can be burned. The problem, as I said earlier, with too much glucose in your blood is that it destroys the lining of your vascular system, which can wreak havoc on your body systems. On the other hand, you need enough glucose to keep your brain and our hearts and our muscle system running. The brain is the biggest consumer of glucose molecules in the body, and it has at any given time about four minutes worth of sugar to burn, which means if it doesn't have enough sugar at any given time, it goes into a condition called hypoglycemia. If the brain is in a hypoglycemic condition for too long, meaning a matter of minutes, 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes, it can go into a coma. Um, At least you can start having seizures, and ultimately if it's not dealt with, uh, someone can die from having uh, too much glucose depletion. So the body is a great big glucose factory. We're consuming glucose when we eat, when we drink, when we have drinks with sugar in them, we are burning glucose and we're storing glucose. There's one organ in the entire body and one cell type in that organ, it's the liver and the liver's hepatocytes that are the only cells in the entire body that can both store sugar in response to insulin, thereby preventing a condition called hyperglycemia or having too much glucose in the blood and then release that glucose when the body is exercising, sleeping, or fasting for whatever reason, and the brain and the heart and the skeletal muscle system need sugar, the only place that that sugar can come from physiologically is from the liver itself. So when we eat food, the liver fills up with glucose and responds to insulin. When we're burning sugar and we need a source of that as fuel, the only place it can come from is the liver itself. And so, healthy individuals who don't have either type one or type two diabetes are able to maintain blood sugar levels within a very tight range, which is really a remarkable and sophisticated system in the body. When we take insulin out of that system because the pancreas has lost its ability to make insulin, we have to get insulin back into the body. We do that by either injecting it from a pen or an old fashioned vial and syringe, or we infuse it from an insulin pump. The challenge with that, life-saving therapy is that we're in, we're putting insulin into peripheral tissue before it can get to the liver. Whereas in a healthy person, it goes to the liver. The liver uses up to 80% of all of that insulin, and then about 20% is released into peripheral tissue. When we inject insulin peripherally, 100% is going into peripheral blood, exposing uh, insulin to fat and muscle cells, which is life-saving because it pulls glucose molecules out of the blood, the challenge is that there's no mechanism for fat cells and muscle cells to release their stored glucose back into the blood to counteract a dangerous low blood sugar event. And if insulin hasn't been able to get to the liver because it's been taken out of the blood before it can get there by these peripheral insulin receptors, not only do we struggle with hyperglycemia, but now we're struggling with hypoglycemia because it's very easy for a human being who's having to make these sophisticated dosing decisions to overdose their insulin injection relative to all kinds of factors. How much carbohydrate or sugar am I consuming? How fast am I burning sugar? When am I gonna sleep? When am I gonna exercise? When am I gonna wake up? When am I gonna have my next meal? Uh, So there, as they say, there are too many oceans to boil as we think about giving ourselves insulin therapy, whereas the pancreas and the liver have these sophisticated signaling systems, feedback loops that manage that all in the background and really in an invisible way in, in people who don't have diabetes. So the the core biodistribution problem with all injected peripheral insulins is that they can't get to the liver because you'd have to dose so much insulin, you'd have to overdose your peripheral tissue to hope to get some into the liver, and you would ri- run the risk of routine hypoglycemia, and people are unwilling to do that because it's dangerous. You can die from a low blood sugar event. The end result of that is patients tend to underdose themselves chronically with insulin because they're having to make a choice. Would I rather have chronic high blood sugar and a somewhat lower risk in the acute sense of a dangerous, maybe even fatal low blood sugar event, or do I want to avoid the long-term consequences of high blood sugar, so I'm more aggressive with my insulin therapy, but now I have to be even more worried about a low blood sugar event. So they're having to make this trade-off decision. And it's, it's really fascinating to watch individual patients make that determination. There's some people who say, I'd rather avoid blindness 10 years from now, oh, yeah. put up with day-to-day low blood sugar risk. And other people say, no, I don't want the... I'll I'll deal with blindness ten years from now because maybe something will come down the the path that's you know solves this problem in a better way. I am a, I am afraid of hypoglycemia. And that's that's just the day-to-day life of a type 1 patient. That's why, as an example, the Diabetes Hands Foundation exists is because you know it's not like taking a statin for high cholesterol. You know you go to the doctor and your cholesterol's too high. They say take a pill once a day and you know just don't go crazy with um, high fat content, high cholesterol foods. In the case of insulin using patients, we're having to assess where we are probably not minute by minute, although you can do that now with continuous glucose monitoring, but at least meal by meal. And usually it's, you know, every half hour, every hour, you know, we want to know where we are from a blood sugar point of view. We don't want to be too high. We don't want to be too low. I
1: think I have a a Pretty clear picture of the problem. But, um, I need to go directly to the technology of the solution.
0: Yeah. So What's the, so- the HDV. Yeah. So the solution is this hepatocyte directed vesicle technology. We make a twenty to fifty nanometer frisbee shaped disc. So there, uh, a nanometer is a billionth of a meter. So these are extremely small structures, and they are highly charged from a molecule point of view, so that when we put liquid HDV into commercial insulin, which is also highly charged, the HDV acts like nano Velcro. And each 20 to 50 nanometer saucer-shaped disc will attract about 100 insulin molecules per disc. And the disc has this vitamin, uh, biotin vitamin uh, molecule embedded in it that's highly specific for the cells in the liver that need it.
1: So that's when your target moiety.
0: That's, that's how we target it. It's like a Trojan horse type strategy. We, we put this additive into commercial insulin. It binds a certain amount of the insulin in the vial. Once that material is injected subcutaneously or taken orally, it protects the insulin molecule that's attached to it from being taken out of the blood too soon by fat cells and muscle cells when that material gets into the blood flow that goes to the liver, it is then preferentially taken out of the blood by this receptor kinetic uh, technology that we've added. It enables a critical amount of insulin to get to the liver at the right time, in the right amount, and in the the right location.
1: So the first question that pops to mind when I hear about a lot of nanotechnology formulations is the word formulation. And so from, you're obviously in the clinic and you've dealt with your regulatory agencies already. Do they call this a formulation or a drug?
0: We are a formulation change to a drug. So we're regulated as a a biologic because we're attaching HTV to insulin. It used to be uh, regulated as a drug, but in March of this year, Insulin switch from the drug side of FDA to the biologic side. So, we will, assuming success in phase three, submit a biologics licensing application or a PLA for approval.
1: Does that switch make your life easier or harder or negligible?
0: Um, you know, we've had to, to think about it differently from a regulatory point of view. Um, under the drug regulations, we anticipated that we would submit. Uh, HDV is a 505 B2 application, which is uh, something that's modifying an already approved drug. With the switch to the BLA side, uh, biologics don't have a 505 B2 pathway. So we've had to do some uh, changes in our thinking from a registration perspective. But practically speaking, it's, it's essentially the same.
1: All right. And now we're going to go directly to the pipeline. You have a number of agents, uh, one in particular in phase three. This is an injectable HDV insulin uh, for type one diabetes. Uh, Where are we in in the development of this program?
0: So we received enablement for phase three earlier this year and we're in the process now of finalizing the protocol design for our two phase three pivotal programs. Uh, As you indicate, uh, it will be in patients with type 1 diabetes, so these are adult type 1 patients with um, kind of the standard spectrum of overall blood glucose control as measured by HbA1c. And the plan, all being well, is to start dosing patients uh, mid next year. So hopefully by the end of the second quarter of next year, we'll be actively enrolling and dosing patients.
1: All right. you have a one, two, three, four, five, at least five other programs. In the interest of time, I don't want to discuss all of them, but uh, there are some I would like to touch on. You have an oral uh, formulation of a drug, GLP-1. Tell me a bit about
0: that. Right. So, uh, Nova was the first company to get an approved oral GLP-1. We have a strategy where uh, we're focused on, generally speaking, the same kind of uh, product. But what we found in our preclinical animal data is that delivering GLP-1 to liver hepatocytes also seems to have an important therapeutic effect. And so by adding GLP-1 to HDV and then turning that uh, liquid material into something that's suitable for oral delivery, we want to get in as quickly as possible into human testing of that. So it's both non-injectable and liver-targeted.
1: the point of ignorance on my part, when you're designing a diabetes trial, um, diabetic patients are very often, if not always, poly-medicated, um, metformin, et cetera. Is, is that an issue in recruiting trials, uh, or are, is it just so common that you couldn't exclude someone and say you will just use this product?
0: So our understanding is that um well, number one in, in type one diabetes trials, everyone's on insulin right? by definition. So that's relatively straightforward. In type two diabetes trials, we have always used patients who essentially by definition are at least on metformin as their frontline therapy. And so we've tested both injectable and oral HDV insulin formulations in people who are also on at least metformin in some cases one or two other oral anti-diabetic agents. It's my understanding that that's fairly common, especially in the type two diabetes space.
1: When, again, running these trials, uh, if you could contrast type one to type two, would there be any difference in the time to read out?
0: No, we typically are running uh, in our phase two B programs, six month trials uh, so that we can capture six months of HbA1c and hypoglycemia data. We would anticipate that that would be the same in uh, type two context as well.
1: How many patients do you anticipate for the phase three trial?
0: We're targeting to um, complete six hundred across two trials, so about three hundred in each trial.
1: Okay. And now, to the um, up to the up to the minute difficulties of running a company. In recruiting the trials and in moving any of your operations forward, uh, has COVID negatively impacted your operations? And if so, how do you adjust?
0: Yeah, we've been in a happy situation where we wrapped up our most recent Phase 2B trial in December of 2019, and we knew that we had to go through certain regulatory interactions and a round of funding to support our Phase 3 program, and then the manufacturing scale-up of the HDB material in preparation for our pivotal phase three trials. So we knew that 2020 was going to be a preparation year rather than a clinical execution year. And so I'm very happy to say that unlike a lot of our our peers who were in the middle of clinical trials when COVID hit, we were not. Um, It may be that in the big picture, we've been slowed down a quarter or so uh, from our original timeline. But that still remains to be seen. I'm hoping we can make up, uh, if we have lost any time, which I'm not sure we have, but if we have, we could make it up as we head into 2021.
1: Well, if nothing else, you still have some news flow. Uh, I'm reading from a June 15th release. Diasome announced substantial reductions in level two hypoglycemia events in the phase 2B OPTI1 study. Uh, Thankfully for a small company, you have data. So uh, what's the top
0: line there? The top line is that one of the biggest challenges with all forms of insulin therapy, as we've talked about, is that insulin can cause hypoglycemia. And there are global consensus statements now from the diabetes world where they've categorized low blood sugar events across three different levels. Level one is where blood glucose is less than 70 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, Normal blood glucose is between 80 and 120 milligrams per deciliter. If blood glucose gets down into the 70 or lower range, patients can begin to feel um, symptomatic. So they can get shaky. They can feel a little bit agitated. They can feel hungry. It's So that's called level one hypoglycemia. Level two hypoglycemia is uh, when blood sugar hits 54 milligrams per deciliter. And the reason why it's 54 and not 55 or 53 is that that is the level at which central nervous system impairment begins to occur because of low blood sugar. So that's the point at which now we're in kind of the, if not the red zone, then a bright orange zone. And then level three is some level of blood glucose where someone begins to lose consciousness or at least needs the assistance of another person or hospitalization. And that's either called level three or severe hypoglycemia. We're measuring level two hypoglycemia as a key endpoint in our trials and we will in our phase three program because of its severity and because it's measurable by continuous glucose monitoring 24 hours a day. What we showed in the OPTI-1 trial and also in the the earlier phase two B trial called the IL-1 trial is that the addition of HDV to commercial mealtime insulin reduces the incidence rate and time spent below 54 milligrams per deciliter with no negative impact on overall blood sugar levels. What that means is that one of the ways you can reduce hypoglycemia is just by allowing people to have high blood sugar all the time. Mm. The challenge with insulin is to, as a, this is probably the wrong uh, word picture, but have your cake and eat it too. You wanna reduce hypoglycemia without allowing overall blood sugar levels to go up. You wanna keep people in a very tight range. And that's what we showed in both of those trials and especially in the um, OPTI1 trial.
1: So what we have is a technology and what we have is data that uh, proof of concept that the technology does what you were hoping it uh, it would do. Um, But I I do have some background in this space and I've uh, reported on several optimization carriers of various products. And what it calls to mind is that if you change the PK of something, you're changing the dose that the patient needs. Um, let's talk about, for briefly, just adoption of this program, assuming it all goes well. Would this require uh, conversations with physicians to say, okay, now the level you were looking at yesterday might be different than the level we're looking at today because of this optimized
0: delivery? There are... At least a couple of aspects to our view on, on that important issue. Number one, we have done surveys of many, many patients with type 1 diabetes, and the consistent response that we get is hypoglycemia fear is their central concern. And they are interested in technologies, both on the therapeutic side and on the medical technology side, that can mitigate low blood sugar risk. When we have interviewed patients uh, about how they would view an insulin that could reduce hypoglycemia, they almost across the board view that very favorably. In terms of how patients would dose this kind of insulin, what we're finding is that one of the most important aspects of HDV insulin is that today with current long-acting and short-acting insulins, if we survey a thousand type 1 patients, 999, I think, would say that their mealtime short acting insulin is the more dangerous of the two in terms of causing hypoglycemia or low blood sugar. Yeah. That's true uh, for today's insulins. That's not true, in our opinion, for physiologic mealtime insulin, physiologic meaning it gets where it needs to go. And so, what we've shown in both the io 1 and Opti 1 is that patients can actually be more aggressive with their mealtime insulin, which they should be uh, to be more physiologic, without increasing and what our data shows is actually decreasing hypoglycemia. So so the mind shift is going to be showing patients coming out of our phase three program that they can be more aggressive with their mealtime insulin and have the best of both worlds, improved overall blood glucose and decreased hypoglycemia which is an unprecedented kind of strategy in the insulin space.
1: I'm, I'm assuming as I'm listening to you describe the need, uh, will you be gathering quality of life data points? Yes, yeah, that'll be a
0: key part of it.
1: Okay. terrific. Um, now let's, let's close with just a few words on the business itself. Uh, you have some IP here, where does it reside?
0: The IP originally uh, comes from SDG, but uh, through a series of license agreements, uh, Diasome, as an example, operates from a worldwide exclusive uh, license from SDG.
1: Okay. And now, money. Uh, you're going to be part of a private company showcase very soon, which is why we're speaking today. What's your current cash situation in regards to your
0: runway? We're in a good situation. Um, We have cash well into next year and we're in the process of raising our next round, which is a series B preferred round. And we're looking forward to um, engaging with institutional investors in support of the phase three program. Perfect,
1: perfect. Um, Bob, this has been great. I have do one final question and it's actually more of a request and I'm going to go back to your original area of expertise, which is music. Uh, You may not know this, but the Trout Group, and the listener may not know this, the Trout Group is actually named after a piece of music called the Trout Quintet by Schubert. Uh, And it was actually, the reasoning behind that is very similar to something you touched on, which is in order to produce music, uh, you need to coordinate a lot of different players. And so in closing, I would like very much if you could recommend to us uh, an orchestral recording of your choice that may be fitting for the times that we're in right now.
0: Uh, That's a a great question, Neil. I guess uh, the first thing that comes to mind would be probably the last movement of Beethoven's seventh symphony. Uh, It's fast paced, it requires a lot of discipline, everyone's gotta play their part, uh, but it's optimistic. So that would be-
1: uh, triumphal, as I recall.
0: And very triumphal. Yeah, we, we will prevail. So I think that, that's, that would be my encouragement to everybody.
1: Bob, I'm going to end with that. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with me today. To the listener, once again, we're talking with Robert Jiho. He is the co-founder and CEO of Diasome Pharmaceuticals. Bob, uh, we'll see you on August 10th.
0: Looking forward to it. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Neil.